happy Saturday. It is September 16th, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. And all we really care about this week, Michael, besides a great new issue of Airmail, is one random guy who lives either in California or in Texas or perhaps on Mars, Elon Musk. Yeah, Elon Musk, who dominating everything with Walter Isaacson's new book and all the bizarre and yet not surprising details that keep emerging from it as it sort of gets out there in the world. Well, Jim Kelly, our fearless books maestro, has sat down with Walter Isaacson, who spent the past two years in Musk's orbit. Ha ha. And we have plenty of that in the issue of Airmail this week. So for those who've not read the book yet, which is to say most people, including me, you'll have plenty to get you excited about reading that. Frankly, I think it's going to be like my popcorn reading over the weekend. Take that, Curtis Sittenfeld. Take that. But we also have plenty of other great stories in the issue this week. Fall is not just about big books. It's a time when the splashy new restaurants open in this week week, Lynn Q.U. has a very enlightening report on the rise of what she calls chef-fluencers, food-based content creators who have generated billions of views on social media and are now turning that clout into real-life restaurants and storefronts. Then, speaking of influence, Stuart Heritage will join us to tell us how Britain's foremost soccer star of all people has built a podcast empire and what's he going to do with it. And finally, the writer Tom Wolfe was the preeminent chronicler of the U.S. in the late 20th century, dissecting social mores with razor wire satire and pyrotechnic prose. And this week, Peter Stevenson will tell us why, five years after Wolf's death, a flurry of projects based on his life and work are being released. So, Ashley... Where would you like to begin today? Let's start with eating, something I'm never going to do again after gaining 10 pounds over the course of four weeks in the U.S. this summer. Just kidding. Lynn Q.U. is a Los Angeles-based writer and an editor at large for Airmail. Welcome, Lynn. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, guys. Okay, Lynn, why is it not enough just to be a chef anymore? Why does everyone have to complicate everything? Well, it's interesting because in being a chef what I've learned from talking to some chef influencers is it's a lot more sustainable in terms of the profession itself. You're not working 13-hour days in a kitchen like you might be at a Michelin place or even a regular kitchen. Um, you're not getting yelled at by the person in charge. You're working at your own pace. You're setting your own hours. And for the most part, it sounds like at the end of the day, money drives everything and you make a lot more money being a chef on TikTok than you do being just a regular line cook in a kitchen. So who was the originator of this trend? Who was the first chef influencer? It's hard to say because people have been doing this for a while and, and you could arguably point to celebrity chefs on television kind of driving that sort of food content creation on media. But probably one of the first really big viral chefs that was able to leverage their virality into brick and mortars is a person who has come to be known as Salt Bay, the Turkish entrepreneur who in 2017 kind of went viral for flinging salt very flamboyantly onto pieces of meat. And from there, Salt Bay's empire now includes 22 steakhouses all around the world. I see the one in London here, Lynn. I know you're in London right now. Are you going to go? Are you making a pilgrimage while you 
you're in town? Because I don't see anybody in there anymore. I have no intentions to go to the steakhouse in London. From what I gathered, I can't say for sure because I haven't been, but based on the reviews online, it seems that people, the gimmick of having your steak wrapped in a 24 karat gold leafing is more for the photos than for the taste. So tell us if Salt Bay is kind of the originator of this, but in your reporting this week, you talk about guys, chefs such as Kevin Lee, who's got more than a million followers on TikTok, and yet comes out of that more traditional restaurant world. Tell us about where he started and what he's doing now as kind of like the next generation of this, right? Sure. Yeah. So someone like Kevin Lee, who's at Chef Boy Lee on various social media platforms, he has over a million followers on TikTok, Instagram. He started out in the traditional, he worked at Danielle, he worked at Morea, both Michelin star kitchens in New York City. And then when the pandemic hit, was a little burnt out on cooking and started making these videos. And soon was able to grow quite a big following from creating just TikTok videos, 60, 60 second TikTok videos, showing himself cooking various things from Western food to Korean food, and has since then become sort of brand name. You can see him doing videos with celebrities like Brooklyn Beckham, or Courtney Cox. And he's got brand sponsorship deals with brands like Suntory Whiskey. If he chooses to do in-person events, he's very, very selective because cooking in person is a lot more of a pressure cooker than having to do it slowly over filming. So his in-person events now can be anything from sponsored dinners to getting flown out to the Hamptons for a private birthday. But according to him, he's making a lot more money doing this. And it's a lot better of a work-life balance, cutting and editing together videos than having to punishingly be in the kitchen for 13 plus hours a night. Lynn, I have to when you go to these restaurants that are run by the Chefluencers, do you tend to be pleasantly surprised, disappointed by the food? Like, are they all hype and no substance? The most recent one I went to was one in West Hollywood called DD that was opened by a Chefluencer, a Vietnamese Chefluencer, Chef Huey. I went into it very excited. Me and a couple of other friends really wanted to support another woman of color and food. And when it was really packed inside, it was a hard reservation to get. We had a book two weeks in advance. There was a lot of hype built up around it. A lot of hype built around the fact that it was a TikTok restaurant. And then when we went, the food ended up being very disappointing. It ended up being very presentation forward. Uh, we had a $65 pho that really was not worth the price point. And it very much felt like that the restaurant space and the menu had been cultivated for social media photos and not very much for the palette. So for example, the $65 pho that we had, there was a platter that came out with a piece of bone with the bone marrow and these three short rib cuts and the wagyu beef was like placed in your bowl. And then you had this woman come out and pour the broth out from this kettle, just very, very beautifully presented, very clearly meant for you to take videos as the broth is being poured into your bowl. But then the taste itself was very middling. Len, while you're in London, may I please make one suggestion? Thomas Straker is one of the original chefluencers here in the UK. He is a major deal on TikTok. He's got like one and a half million followers on TikTok. Everybody thought this guy was just a chef influencer. It turns out his restaurant in Notting Hill is unbelievable. So if you are find yourself up on Golden Road, Straker's is really, really good. I mean, it's really hyped, but it lives up and I think in fact exceeds it a lot of the time. So anyway, just a little restaurant recommendation if you're in the neighborhood. Welcome to town.
Thank you for the recommendation. I'm looking up right now. I'm very excited to do that. Yeah. Lynn, my last question to you. I think what's also interesting in your report this week is you note that sometimes this chef fluence kind of goes the other way, where you talk about a little sandwich shop in Florence that sort of got known for its sandwiches and now is sort of like leveraging that to open up in New York City and other places, right? What's the name of this place? Al Antico Vinao, I believe is the name, and Vinao, excuse my terrible Italian pronunciation. But yeah, they're an example of a Florentine panini shop, very photogenic sandwiches that kind of went Instagram viral and has since then garnered some celebrity support. A master chef judge has invested and they've been able to expand into New York. And I think this year opened the Los Angeles branch for the first time. And overall, to wrap things up, it's not that all chef influencers are anti-taste. I'm not saying that everyone's restaurants like Straker's turns out to be great. I'm sure a lot of these TikTok chefs are very much committed to great food and committed to great taste. But at the same time, many of them may not have worked in a restaurant before, before launching a brick and mortar. Perhaps they didn't have as much time to test their menus on people as well. So it's just a different world that we're in now. It's a different way of creating food that for a select group of people means a lot more money for them and a lot more work-life balance, which is fantastic. But then when it then comes back into a brick and mortar, it's up to the public to decide whether it's worth patronizing time and time again. And we can blame Salt Bay for sprinkling $1,000 golden tomahawks with 24 karat gold uh, salt. So blame it all on him, right? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Lynn, thank you for investigating this trend and saving us from some potentially bad meals. There's no worse fate. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. So I should have an important question for you. Please. Remember the cronut craze here in New York a few years ago? The mashup of a croissant and a donut and everyone waiting in line for one? Did you wait in line for that? How could I ever forget? Actually, I actually have a good story about that. The morning after I delivered Charlie at New York hospital. I'm not even kidding. I'd had a C-section and I was like, I could not walk. I was like really not in a good place. And I called my mother who was in town. Mom, I love you so much. Sorry about this. And my mom was not at the hospital with me. She was on her way, but she unfortunately was delayed because she was waiting in line to buy me a cronut. I was like, mom, I do not need a cronut. But such was the craze that even my mother, who is not even remotely interested in food trends or fads, was completely in their thrall. Well, she had you top of mind, a little sugar and carb, a little something after delivery. That was very nice of her. Okay. Yes, it was very nice. But Michael, after having major abdominal surgery, all I wanted, sorry to say it, was some oxy. Anyway, moving right along, tell me about the cronut. That was, seems to me it's kind of the beginning of this shuffluencer thing that Lynn tells us about. It's a great piece of reporting and good social context and just looking at the trends. And speaking of trends, I want to talk to Stuart Heritage about Gary Lineker and his podcasting empire over there. Yes, we should talk about this. I mean, it's like footballers are king in the UK and they certainly will not be pigeonholed. Case in point, Gary Lineker, this guy's had more careers than most people would ever even aspire to have. And Stu is here to tell us about his latest, greatest run as the founder of a podcasting empire. Stu is an editor at large for Airmail and one of our favorite people ever. All right. Welcome, Stu Heritage. Hello. So, Stu, before we even get into a conversation about the podcast empire of Gary Lineker, we need you on the record. What is your favorite podcast of all time? Oh, you know the answer to this. My favorite podcast of all time is your podcast. Thank you. Good. You can stay on the show now. (laughs) 
Now that we've established that very important fact, let's get into the heart of the business, which is these really great podcasts that are produced by one of the UK's biggest football slash soccer stars of all time, Gary Lineker. How did this all happen, Stu? It's a very unexpected sort of third act for him. He's Gary Lineker. He's a guy who sort of has success in anything he tries. He was a professional footballer, played for England, was the second highest goal scorer in all of England football history for about 25 years before someone took his record. Moved to broadcasting, became the BBC's highest presenter. Now he's turned his hand to producing podcasts and he currently has the top six podcasts in the country at the moment. Four of them are his. And those are, Stu, in any particular order. They're very easy to remember because they've all got the same title. The rest is history. The rest is politics. The rest is football. And the newest one is called The Rest is Money. I have to say, I love The Rest is History. And I also love The Rest is Politics. I've not yet listened to the other two. But I mean, clearly he has arrived at some sort of magic formula. How do you explain it, Stu? Well, he's able to get some very big names for a start. The Rest is Money, for example, the two very popular business presenters. The rest is politics is presented by big names from both Labour and the Conservatives. The rest is football he's in. And I mean, that's a big draw in itself, just listening to Gary Lineker talking about football and himself. Yeah. And so I think the reason they get the big names is because they the revenue equally between the hosts and the production company, which is, I think, very lucrative based on sort of the nuggets. No one's said any numbers, but the hints, it sounds very lucrative. It's very sort of nice and friendly in tone, very sort of non-confrontational. It sounds like there are some minor disagreements, but everyone sort of agrees on anything. But it's all quite chummy and friendly. As you note in your reporting, I mean, they've got great producers behind the scenes who sort of pull together. I think people, it seems they connect with this because you're actually learning something, right? I mean, it's not just two blokes whinging on about stuff, but it's actually you come away with, as they say in the business, some takeaway, right? Yeah. And they're very, the history one less so, obviously, but they're all very news reactive. So rather than have a new episode every week, if something happens, they'll claw together the presenters and they'll sort of churn out an episode quite quickly. And it seems to be going like incredibly well. The politics one, definitely in the football one, it's a bit too early to say with the money one, but I expect it'll be the same. They're releasing episodes every sort of three or four days, maybe every two days sometimes. So this has got to be kind of an expensive thing to produce, no? Like I feel like he's arrived at this formula of podcasting where you put a lot of money in and you end up getting a lot of money out, right? Yeah, I think so. Rory Stewart, who's one of the presenters of The Rest is Politics, he's sort of been the only one who's broached how much money that they've made. And he says it's equivalent to the salary of a champion league footballer, which is kind of the tens of thousands of pounds a week. So it's by hiring the big names, I think it's really paying off. Gary Lineker, if you're listening and you need more talent, you know where to find Michael and I. We're here for you. We can help. I think the title of his show, The Rest is Money, sort of sums up probably what the motto of the company is now because it seems like they're just pulling in money. The rest is laughing all the way to the bank. It seems like with anything these days, if you have a media empire or a media platform, you inevitably get pulled into politics. And it seems like, can you tell us about how he stepped into it sort of like either purposefully or accidentally recently? And do you think he's going to do more of that with this kind of platform? Gary Lineker. Yeah, he's got a sort of a reputation for tweeting his opinions about things, which as a BBC employee, generally that's quite a tight rope to walk because the BBC prides itself on impartiality. So a very critical tweet of the language used in some government policy about immigration, just a huge firestorm kicked off and the BBC suspended him basically from match of the day because he'd sort of gone beyond his station. The fascinating thing is that all of the on-air talent boycotted it in protest. So he kind of won. That's the level of power that Gary Micka has now and he can defeat the BBC. So you kind of uh, mentioned it in the piece, but it feels like the podcasting might be an escape route where he can just make as much money as he wants without 
sort of the press and his critics sort of on his back all the time. Yeah, as I say, with platform becomes power, becomes influence. So it'll be interesting to see how he builds it out, what he does to it, but especially within the UK there. Well, yeah, the full name of the company is Goalhanger Films. And I think they might have changed it recently. The website was Goalhanger Podcast for a while. And now it's Goalhanger Films. So yeah, who knows? He's done very well three times in a row. So let's see how he does in Hollywood. All right. Well, Stu, thank you so much for following this, making sense of it and talking to us about it. I think we've got a lot of listening to do this weekend. You have several episodes, four podcasts. They're coming out every three or four days. Imagine how much listening you have to do. All right. We'll see you in 2024. Have a great weekend. Thanks. See you later. Tom Wolf died five years ago, but that doesn't mean he's not allowed to have a moment yet again. The mischief-making enfant terrible who coined the phrase the new journalism in the 70s is hotter than ever, and that is thanks in part to Radical Wolf, a new documentary about his life and times, narrated by John Hamm and based on a Vanity Fair profile that was written by Michael Lewis. It is opening momentarily, and Peter Stevenson and his colleague George Gurley have written a great story for Airmail telling us all about Wolf Mania. And Peter's a former editor at the New York Observer, a marvelous writer, and we're very happy to have him here. Welcome, Peter Stevenson. All right, so five years after the death of Tom Wolfe, he's having a moment. How do you explain this? Well, it's a bit odd. Several things were in the works that are all sort of coming together now. And the largest one being David E. Kelly has adapted Wolfe's novel, A Man in Full, for a limited Netflix series. And when I talked to David Kelly about this, he said that he thinks Wolfe's themes are more resonant now than ever. For example, Wolfe published A Man in Full in 1998. And it was about economic status, racial politics, and sexual morals. And it's everything Wolf writes about in the book, you could see it unfolding today. And Wolf's resurgence is also reflected in, there's a documentary out about him this month called Radical Wolf, which interviews family and friends and gives it a terrific sense of who Wolf was in New York City in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. And Farrar Strauss is republishing some of his paperbacks with new introductions and new book jackets. These things all happen separately, but I noticed they were all happening. And in addition, Warner Brothers is adapting Bonfire of the Vanities into a limited series, which was made into a movie and was a great failure. So in some ways, Wolf is an unlikely figure for our time because he's certainly not politically correct. He wrote huge long novels. And for him to sort of come back now is it's sort of an interesting thing to look at. And I'm not sure quite what it means. He was a force unto himself and his resurgence has got a lot of journalists excited, I think, because he elevated journalism to a level almost above fiction. Peter, in your essay this week about Wolf, I think one thing that was also so revealing is you sat down with his wife, Sheila. Can you tell us about what she told you? Yes. Sheila Wolf was in the art department at Esquire magazine when she met Tom Wolf, and he married late. He was 48 when they got married. And it was actually his book, The Right Stuff, was his first big bestseller. And that came out in 1979. That was about the Mercury astronauts. And The Right Stuff won the National Book Award and was a bestseller. So all of a sudden, Sheila and Tom Wolfe were being invited to New York society parties, Brooke Astor's house, people like that. And neither one of them had ever been to parties like this. And Wolf, true to form, was working on ideas for his next book, which had become Bonfire of the Vanities. So as they went to these parties, Wolf wanted to take mental notes for his next book. 
and he couldn't really maneuver in the parties because he was so popular. And of course, at the time, he had already started wearing his very distinctive white suit and spats and sort of costume, if you will. And so when they would go to a party, he would be mobbed at the door. And then Sheila, his wife, would float around the party, noticing conversations, remembering them. And then when they got home to their townhouse on the Upper East Side, she would tell Tom the details of what she heard. And when Bonfire of the Vanities was published, which became an even bigger bestseller than the right stuff, he had lampooned these society people. And he talked about the women as he called them social x-rays, the very, very thin women. He talked about the mistresses, the second wives, the men as masters of the universe. And Sheila Wolf told me that when the book came out, even though he had written this scathing satire of this Upper East Side high society world, that Upper East Side high society world embraced him even more. They got more invitations. They had found their chronicler. And one thing about Wolf that's interesting is that his agent, Lynn Nesbitt, told me he could have really become the toast of the town, become part of that high society, but he always kept a distance. And Gay Talese told me he thinks that's because Wolf was from Richmond, Virginia, and he had a Southerner's sort of casual disregard for New York society. And he wanted to retain that distance as a journalist, as a writer. And so even though Wolf was probably the most recognizable writer in New York and certainly the most toasted writer on the Upper East Side, he was never of that world. He remained a Southern man from the start. And when he would lampoon people, they often didn't get the point. He had written a book criticizing modern architecture called From Bauhaus to Our House, which he wrote in 1981. And even though he had lampooned modern architects when there was a party for Philip Johnson, Tom Wolfe would be invited. People with power didn't really know what to do with them. He was paying attention to them in this incredibly pyrotechnic, entertaining way. But at the same time, he was sticking the knife in a little bit. But he made himself unavoidable. He made himself inevitable. Peter, I think one of the notes you articulate in, in your story this week as well, which is everything we're talking about here is remind us that Wolf started as a reporter, a newspaper reporter, and just talking about Sheila and him at these parties and the great success of all these novels is his reporting, right? And I think there's a wonderful anecdote that you get from his daughter, Alexandra, about the key to being a reporter, right? Yes. He said that Wolf was very interested in human psychology, biochemistry, neurology, all sorts of psychological theories. And he believed that all of us have something called information compulsion that if you give somebody this if you're silent and give someone the space to talk they'll be compelled to divulge things to you they almost can't help themselves and it's one reason why wolf so he reported all of his novels before he wrote them and when he was reporting, Wolf found early on that rather than try to blend in with the scene he was reporting on, he would wear this white suit or a version thereof because he felt the more a reporter stood out from the people he or she is writing about, the more people would be compelled to tell him something. It's almost like Janet Malcolm said that people don't realize that they're going to confess more to journalists than they think they are. So Wolf would report all the novels and for Bonfire, the Vanities, he went to the Bronx courthouse 
house. He went to Park Avenue parties. He went to the bond trading floor and people would tell him things. One of the things about Wolf, which I don't know any working journalist today who do this, he could take shorthand. So he was able to write down huge amounts of information very quickly. And his insistence on reporting out your novel before you write it was sort of his calling card. And he got him into a lot of trouble because he attacked John Updike, Norman Mailer and John Irving for relying too much on their imaginations. And he drove them crazy. When A Man in Full came out in 1998, Norman Mailer wrote a 12-page review in the New York Review of Books where the one hand he says, Wolf may be our best writer, but he's not a truly great writer. And John Updike wrote a several page review in the New Yorker in which John Updike said, Wolf lacks the exquisite touch of a great fiction writer. And then John Irving said that Wolf was almost unreadable. So Wolf, of course, responds with an essay called The Three Stooges, where he says about these guys, these guys are mad because everyone's talking about me, including them. They're talking about me. And Wolf loved the fight. He loved to rile people up because he never took himself as seriously as they took themselves. So he would rile everybody up. But in person, he was very mild mannered. His daughter told me she never saw him lose his temper once. He was left to Sheila, Tom Wolf's wife, to yell at the kids. And apparently whenever she did, Wolf himself, when he heard his wife yelling, would physically shake because he couldn't stand any temper or drama in the house. But meanwhile, on the page, out and about, Wolf loved drama and causing fights and stirring things up. And there's a real dichotomy there that, that's interesting. Well, it's a great story, Peter. And I love the way that you tell it. And I love the way that we're going to be able to experience it through the course of this new documentary. So thank you so much for bringing it to us. Oh, I'm happy to. You can reread his stuff, Radical Chic, or his book from the 70s and the 80s still feel very fresh. He never gets stale, even though his writing is so unique, you would think you would get sick of it. But somehow he's able to keep it tied to an emotional truth that keeps it fresh. Well, thank you so much, Peter. It's, it's a great story. Thanks, guys. Grateful to you for being here. Thanks. My pleasure. Take care. Bye, Peter. Bye. Ashley, favorite Tom Wolf book? Oh, God. Do you even need to ask? Bon Perry the Vanities, please. Hmm. I'm human. Yours? I can't argue with that. I do have great fondness for the right stuff as well. Fine. All right. Let's not fight, Michael. It's too early in the weekend to do that. We'll save it for Sunday. I'm not fighting. <laughs> we got on this morning and I saw you on the little link here. What is the first thing you said? I said, Ashley, you look lovely today. Your hair, fantastic hair day. Didn't I say that? You did. You said that. It was very nice. I'm wearing makeup today. And then the listeners at home, I just want you to know, we have the ability to see each other on camera, but Ashley says things which she's like, okay, I'm turning my camera off now. And when we record, we turn our cameras off, which I think helps us listen better. But I do love seeing you in the beginning. Of, so just saying that. I love to see you too. But if my camera's on, that means all I'm doing is looking at myself and making a checklist of things for my cosmetic dermatologist to address. So no, we're going to keep those cameras off. All right. All right. Well, Michael, it is the weekend. Lord knows we've got plenty of things to watch in the realm of Tom Wolf. But do you have anything at all you can recommend to us? I do. It comes out of a novel by a guy named Victor Laval. Have you seen the new Apple Plus series called The Changeling? No, how is it? I'm one episode in, and of course I was drawn to it because it stars Keith Stanfield, whose work always says something great. And it's based on this Victor Laval novel about a young couple who become parents, speaking of having a child, Ashley, but they don't get a cronut afterward from their mother or mother-in-law. It's almost a very modern, gothic telling of what happens to a young couple when their child comes. So it's sort of jumps around in time. I'm two episodes in, 
but I'm very intrigued. I'm going to keep going with it and we'll see where I am. But it's The Changeling and it's on Apple TV. And you, my dear? Well, funnily enough, I'm reading Rory Stewart's memoir right now. It's called Politics on the Edge. And it's not intentionally because I loved Sue's article. It was actually because my husband loves Rory Stewart and Tom Holland even more than I do and went and saw them at the Barbican last week. They did a little talk. Anyway, it's quite fabulous and funny, as you can imagine, for any listeners of The Rest is History. It tells you all about the story of this wild and crazy guy and how he went from being sort of an outsider in the realm of politics to a contestant for prime minister. Then he got fired from the conservative party. Oops. And had a falling out with the party itself over Johnson. So anyway, it's really well written. It's called Politics on the Edge, a memoir from within by Rory Stewart. Highly recommend it. Sounds great. All right. Well, we wish you all a wonderful weekend full of much podcasting and much podcast listening. Michael, will you please read us out? I will, because the rest is Saturday afternoon. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon, and our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alison Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you again for joining us.